verse 1, chapter 15 of Luke, verse 1. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable, what man among you? If he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together all his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman? If she has 10 silver coins and loses one of them, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin which I had lost. And in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You may be seated. Again, let me give you a little bit of the context of where we are in our study. We know at this particular time here that the hour is rapidly approaching when Jesus is going to make his final ascent up into Jerusalem where he knows already that he will face a betrayal from one of his own He will be turned over to his enemies and ultimately he will be crucified and he will bear the weight of the sin of the world upon his shoulders. This is the course that Jesus knows that he is on. Now last time in our study at the close of chapter 14, we saw that there was this large crowd that had gathered together to see Jesus. Remember, he's quite popular. People have come from all over the regions just to see Jesus, some to be touched by Jesus. They all have their unique reasons for coming to Jesus. But in essence, Jesus really began to kind of weed them out and to kind of root them out by defining the terms of what it really means to be a disciple. Rather than soft-pedaling it or sugar-coating it or glamorizing this gospel message or placating to the whims and desires of the felt needs of the people themselves in this seeker-friendly environment, Jesus lays out the radical terms of what it means to be a disciple. He said in verse 26 and 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And we saw there that a disciple must possess an undivided loyalty to Christ alone. It means that if we're going to be his disciple, that he has to hold that place of utmost preeminence of loyalty and honor above every other relationship in our lives, even those that are most dear, even our own personal interest. 
It means that we will never settle for having Jesus just be an an additive to our lives, nor will we settle for him being just another important relationship in our lives. It means that he is the preeminent, most important relationship of our life, that he is number one. And it's interesting because when you go back to the book of Exodus and you see how God gives the Ten Commandments this covenant of relationship with his people and this covenant in the Ten Commandments, he starts off with, you shall have no other gods before me. And secondly, he says, you shall not make for yourself an idol of any likeness of what is in heaven or on earth, beneath the water, under the earth. God is saying, I must be preeminent in your life. There is to be no rival to my place among you. And when you worship me, he is saying, I want you to worship me for who I declare myself to be, not who you want me to be or think I should be, but worship me for who I am. In fact, Tozer says this about idolatry. He says, among the sins to which the human heart is prone, hardly any other is more hateful to God than idolatry. For idolatry is at bottom a libel on his character. The idolatrous heart assumes God is other than he is, in itself a monstrous sin, and substitutes for the true God one made in its own likeness. Always this God will conform to the image of the one who created it and will be base or pure, cruel or kind, according to the moral state of the mind of which it emerges." You know, basically what Tozer is saying, God must be worshiped for who he says he is. Not who for who we say he is or people want him to be. We don't get to fashion him in our image. So in many ways, Jesus here, God the Son, is saying the same thing to those who would follow after him. If you're going to be identified with me as my disciple, if you're going to take that place of ownership that I'm going to have to hold the place of preeminence in your life that is above every other relationship. And he's saying, you can't just accept me and, and declare who you want me to be in the image of your likeness. No, it has to be for who I declare myself to be. And Jesus made it really clear that he wasn't telling his disciples that because of their relationship with him that they're going to cut off their families and cut off their friends, but he understood that their friends and their families may cut them off because of Jesus. And the truth is, as we saw, we will never love our father, our mother, or wives, or husbands, our brothers, or sisters, or children, and even ourselves more with a greater and purer love than we put Jesus as number one in our lives. Secondly, Jesus says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We saw here a disciple must deny themselves and carry their own cross. This life of a true disciple is one that calls for absolute, unconditional surrender to the will and the purposes of God with self-abandon. And that we all have to carry our own cross. I can't bear yours, you can't bear mine. There are some things in our relationship with Christ that cost us dearly, and they are unique to each of us individually. God knows what they are, but it means this. It means that I have to abdicate this throne of self and allow Jesus to rule and reign over my life. It means that our plans are to become his plans for us. 
It means that our will is to be his will for us. And it means that our purpose is to be his purpose for us. Thirdly, Jesus said in verse 33, so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Wow. Jesus says a disciple must forsake all to follow after him. Not only must he have the preeminent relationship in their lives, but this of all greater things, he is the greatest above even your possessions. That all rights to your earthly possessions are now laid at the foot of the cross. A disciple holds lightly to earthly possessions. We seek to possess without being possessed by the things that we do possess. In fact, what you look at it biblically is this, is we recognize that the best as we are is merely stewards. We're caretakers and managers with the resources that God has entrusted to us, that everything we really have is his first. Everything belongs to him. And so with Jesus in giving these, these potent illustrations here, he stresses the importance then of counting the cost, of making sure that if you're a follower of Jesus, that you first count the cost. And he gave the illustration of the builder who builds the tower and the king who goes out to battle. Just a wise king goes first counts the cost or the builder first counts the cost before he builds. So Jesus would say to everyone who really wants to be called his disciple, count the cost. See what this is, and then come follow me, because only we saw the true disciple becomes the salt of the earth. That our spiritual value to this lost world is only as good as we are willing to be true disciples of Christ, following after him in obedience to his will and his purposes. So after laying out these terms of discipleship, Discipleship, which would have, in fact, probably weeded out a lot of the crowd of these would-be disciples, and they hear this and go, I don't know if I want this, man. I don't know if this is what I'm looking for. I mean, (laughs) this is a little bit too much. We come here to this chapter where Jesus here expounds upon the joy of being a disciple, the joy of belonging to the Lord. A joy of being one of those who knows we can call our Father who is benevolent and that he cares for us. In this chapter, Jesus gives three parables describing things that are lost but are then found and the joy that occurs when that which is lost is found. And so today we're going to look at the very first two parables and I'm saving the the best for next week. I can't wait to get there already. Yesterday I was doing my study. I said, man, I I want to do this. I want to do that. And it's like, could we squeeze it all in in one week? I said, no, we can't. But look what had happened here, verse one. All the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And again, I want you to catch the flow of what's taking place here. This is taking place on the heels of what just happened in chapter 14 when Jesus gave the radical demands of discipleship. No doubt there are many who had walked away on that day, but there's some among them who come and seek Jesus all the more. And who are they? Well, they're tax collectors and they're sinners. These are known bad people. 
These are not the people you would typically say, wow, this is really great. But rather than being repelled by Jesus and his demands of discipleship, they are drawn to him all the more. And of course, these associations only exacerbated, only irritated and infuriated the hostile Pharisees, Pharisees who were already looking for any reason at all to put Jesus to death. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes, they despised Jesus. And they had made their list of all their offenses they had toward Jesus that he didn't recognize and adhere to their man-made traditions and their laws that they had given divine weight. That Jesus wasn't impressed with their rigid self-righteousness and that he would publicly expose their hypocrisy. They resented his popularity among all the people. They resented that Jesus was himself an uneducated commoner from a know-nothing town from Nazareth. They resented his associations with low-life, poor, uneducated commoners like fishermen with no reputation. And while they could never question really the validity of his miracles, the best they could do is attribute those works to the works of Satan. But here, this is what really gets them here. This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. This is a biggie. You see, in that culture, eating a meal with someone is really significant. It's a sign of intimacy, of fellowship, of communion. You're literally, when you eat with someone, you're becoming part of them. You're sharing together of a likeness. And so when they see Jesus, they despise his association with these sinners. You see, the religious leaders, they had a way of separating all people between two groups. You had the good and you had the bad. You had the righteous and you had the unrighteous. You had the clean, you had the unclean. Now it was a given to a Jew that every Gentile is unclean. They're all unrighteous. But there is nothing worse to a Jew than seeing another Jew who is sinful, disobedient to God because of their choices. You see, it was the duty of the clean to make sure they keep themselves clean lest they be defiled from that which is dirty. Thus they see Jesus receiving and eating with tax collectors, these known sinners, and they began to grumble all the more. You see, tax collectors, as we have said many times before, they would have been considered by Jews as sellouts, as traitors, as thieves. Because not only did they work in league with the Roman occupiers, but they were known to enrich themselves at the expense of their fellow Jews. That term sinners there is a broader term, but it includes all forms of outward sin, prostitution, adultery, theft, willful known acts of sin. And the amazing thing is, is that Jesus' own disciples, his closest ones, Matthew was himself a tax collector. And there was another one in the group with Jesus whose name is Simon the Zealot who normally would have hated tax collectors, but these two guys are part of the very closest associations with Jesus. And the idea is that the Pharisees and the scribes were so repelled by Jesus while the tax collectors and the sinners are drawn to him. 
Back in chapter 5, we saw this there. It says, the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but call sinners to repentance. The fact is here, people, and I want you to see this, that Jesus is drawn to the tax collectors and the sinners. They are the ones who are getting his attention. You see, Jesus is the seeker of sinners. This is who he's going for. You know, churches today make a big deal about being seeker sensitive. You know, they want to make sure the gospel is, you know, very clear, it's very appealing, that we make sure that all those seekers really, really want to come to Jesus because of, you know, the message itself. But Romans 3.11 says, there is none righteous, there's none who seek God. There's none who seek God. No one would seek God apart from God first seeking them. And so why is Jesus here drawn to the sinners? The reason is, is because they're lost. They're lost. You see, the sinners are far more willing to acknowledge their condition and their need for a savior, while the Pharisees are far too proud and arrogant and self-righteous to acknowledge they have any need of their own. One of the many things I appreciate about Jesus when I look at his reference to his interactions with the religious leaders that he never ever allowed himself to be manipulated or controlled by, by their manipulations, trying to force him into their little box. You know, I find that it's really easy to play into the hands of self-righteous people. I wish it wasn't true, but when you're around self-righteous people, you just kinda, you wanna make sure that they think you're righteous too. Jesus does kinda blows them off. He doesn't really, you know, hey, you guys think what you wanna think. These are the people that I came here for. So rather than defending himself or playing into the hands of the Pharisees, Jesus gives these beautiful parables here. Three of them, one's a verse, the first one's a lost sheep. He's one of a hundred that is lost. The next one is a lost coin, one of 10 that is lost. And then you have the lost son when it's one of two that is lost. But let's look at this parable of the lost sheep. Verse three, so he told them this parable saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls, I tell you that in the same way, they're coming, they're, uh, they're together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep which was lost. Will there be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance? This is the beautiful parable in which Jesus uses this analogy of a shepherd who cares for his sheep in the same way that God would care for his own people. Now, shepherds in that culture were an occupation, didn't have a lot of glory to it. In fact, caring for sheep was considered a smelly, a dirty business. There was no real glory to it, but there's a good reason. Because sheep are messy. They're dirty. But more than that, you can see here, is, as you find, go in the Bible, that Psalm 103, it likens people to being sheep. And there's a very good reason. 
Psalm 103 says that 100, verse 3 says, Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us, and we not ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. I love Nathan reading Psalm 23 this morning. The Lord is my shepherd. You have that picture of that endearing relationship of a shepherd with his sheep. But sheep, as you all know, are not the brightest animal in town. You don't train them like a dog. You don't say, hey, go sit, lie down. They just have a way of doing what they're going to do. They, they, they wander off without even thinking about it. I mean, it's just natural for them to kind of find something over here and there. They drift off over there and they're easily distracted by every little thing that comes their way and they're vulnerable to deception. They tend to go with the flow. I mean, we, we call them sheeple, don't we? You guys have seen a lot of sheeple this last year? Oh, man. Everywhere you go, it's like, bah, bah, bah. I mean, people are sheep. They don't have a mind. They just say, what are you doing? I'll, I'll do what you do. Bah, bah, bah. Go on with that. Sheep need shepherds to guide them. Isaiah 53, 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own. You know, it is no wonder that when God was looking for a shepherd, for, for a king to be a king for his people, that he chose a shepherd boy. And one like David. In fact, we're told that when the brothers of David were summoned before Samuel, that David wasn't even among the brothers. Why? Because he was out tending the flock. He loved them so much. He took such responsibility in being a shepherd that if one of his sheep was attacked by a lion or a bear, he went and fought for them just to rescue them. Don't you like having a shepherd like that? And this is the kind of king that God wanted to shepherd his people. One who would really love them and willing to give of himself for them. Even knowing that they're dumb. Even knowing that they wander. Even knowing that they're not so bright. You see, in this parable, we find the story of this good shepherd who cares for his flock, and he has a hundred of them. Now, these are not just any sheep, you see. These are his sheep. They've been given to his charge. And at the end of the day, he gives an accounting of all his sheep, and he finds that one of them is missing. Now, at this point, he isn't too bothered by what happened or how the thing got away. All he knows at this point is that sheep is off on its own. It is in danger. He wants to get a hold of that sheep. Now, if he isn't a good shepherd, he could have just written off the loss and said, well, <laughs> sorry, lost one. He could have said, well, at least I don't lose any more. I still have 99, and you know, maybe I'll get another one to replace it down the road. No, he cannot bear the thought that that one lost sheep is out there alone without his shepherd. And of course, in the parable, the shepherd leaves the 99 and search for the one. And it's assumed here that he leaves them in the care where he knows they are protected, where he knows they are being watched. It isn't that he doesn't care about the 99. Of course, he loves them all. They're all safe. But there's one that is in danger. And so he goes out and he searches and searches on his little rescue mission. And finally, he sees it out there, wandering out there by itself in a very dangerous spot. And he goes out there and he grabs that little sheep 
and he throws it over his shoulders and he begins to carry it safely back home where it belongs. And when he returns back with that sheep on his shoulders, there's much joy on his face. He calls out to the friends and the neighbors. He says, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. And then Jesus gives the point of the parable, verse 7. He says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. These tax collectors and sinners despised by the Pharisees were the lost sheep of Israel. They were lost. They had, as Jews, they had belonged to God. They were the objects of his affection, of his love, but they had lost their way. They had gone astray. But he doesn't just write them off. He doesn't say, well, what a bunch of losers you are. Just go off and do your own thing. No, he loves them and he goes after them to rescue them. Psalm, or Luke 19, 10 says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And he says there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who have no need to repent. When a sinner repents, people, there is a party in heaven. There's a celebration when that which is lost is found. Notice that when the sinner repents, he's he, he isn't willing to stay lost. He finds himself weary of wandering. He realizes, man, I'm out here in a place of danger. <laughs> There's my shepherd. And he takes hold of me and he throws me over his shoulders and he carries me back to a place where I am fed, a place where I am safe, a place where I am nurtured. The lost sheep realizes the joy of what it means to belong to a loving shepherd who loves him and cares enough to go after him when he's lost. He's not just a number. He's not just one of many. He's lost, he's loved, he's pursued, he is found. I don't know how many times over the years the Lord has had to come to me and minister this to my own heart, that he loves me. Not because of the things I do, not because I'm a pastor or because of anything that I have. He loves me because he loves me individually. He cares for me. We're all important to him. He treasures the sheep of his pasture. And then Jesus gives this next parable, verse eight, or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it, and when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Same idea as the first, instead of being one in a hundred now, it's one in ten. She has 10 silver coins. These are called a drachma. It's really, it's equal to a, day, a day's wage. But the value of this lost coin is far more than monetary worth. It's something deeply personal to her. You see, typically, a Jewish girl, when they got married, they were given a headband of 10 silver coins. 
And it signified that they were now a wife, kind of like a, a wedding band that we would think of with our wives today. However, she takes a look at the band and she realizes that all of her coins, that one of them's lost. Much like the wife who picks up her wedding ring goes, man, I lost one of my little stones. She doesn't say well, to herself, well, that's okay. I still got nine more. Well, I still got all the others. That's good. That's all right. I'll just get over it. No, all of a sudden, that one coin becomes the most important thing in the world because it's lost and she needs it. And so she goes on a search for that specific coin. No other coin, no person can come and say, well, I'll give you a, po- a coin to replace it. No, I want that coin, that coin alone. That's the one that I want. And she gets down on her hands and knees. She lights a candle. She looks under the bed. She looks everywhere that she can find just to find where in the world that coin is. And ultimately, she finds it. I mean, most of us, we can relate to this experience. Do you lose things, anybody? Man, aren't we bad? I have this thing on my key ring that I can kind of buzz it and, you know, from my phone and it tells me where they are because I mean, we all know what it's like to lose something. But it's terrible. I remember one year, many years ago at the camp out, it was a really hot time and typically we don't go in the freezing cold water. But it was so hot that year, we played volleyball down in the creek. And all of a sudden, one of the guys realizes that he had lost his wedding ring. And all of a sudden, everything stopped. We had no idea. I mean, this running water, there's rocks everywhere. We have no idea what in the world. We, we, <laughs> we go on this search mission to find the ring. So we made a little dam. We took all the rocks we could. We dammed it up and thought, well, probably somewhere in this range, that ring is somewhere in there. The water's still running. You know, ultimately, we found that thing. That was a happy husband and a happier wife. I mean, it's like, hey, this is really good. All of a sudden, it means that much more to you. For sure, the woman, she cares about the other nine coins, but they're safe. Now, this one is lost, and it consumes her until she finds it. Like the first parable, the point is the same. In the same way, he tells you that there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. All of heaven rejoices over one sinner lost sinner when they find their way home and repentance. You see, to Christ, this is the joy of being the shepherd, of knowing that he is your shepherd, of knowing that you belong to him and how significant we are to him. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And do you know that God has always been the one doing the seeking? That's what the Bible tells us. When you go back to Genesis, and haven't you guys been enjoying that? In Gen- Anybody going through Genesis in the one-year Bible? Isn't it been great? I, I, every year, I just can't wait to read these stories again. But in the garden, after Adam and Eve sinned, remember what they did? They, they hid from God. Instead of coming out to meet him in the morning on that daily fellowship they felt shame and they felt guilt and so they hid. And, and it was the Lord who came and sought them out. He's the one who went looking for them. In fact, the very first question in the Bible is God calling out to Adam and Eve who are lost and saying, where are you? 
Where have you gone? And of course, they're hiding away in their shame and in their guilt. And it is God who spills the first blood as he finds that animal to find a covering to provide for them so that they come back into relationship with him without shame. And thus you have the first sacrifice that is made by God himself for the sake of his fellowship with his people. When I was lost, he came after me. He sought me out. It was hard for me because I grew up in a church that kind of gave me the idea that like, God was just ready to dump me. I mean, if I just strayed off a little bit, man, he was going to let me go. You just go. You do your own thing. That if I didn't hold on tight enough to him, that he would be so willing just to let go of me. How wrong I was. How wrong. I learned over the years that he really loves me. That he chased after me when I have strayed. How many times? More than I can count. I'm a sheep and I tend to wander but I have a shepherd who's watching out. I realized it wasn't so much about me holding tight on him. He was holding tight to me. And he was watching out to me and he brought me to repentance, not to leave me in my sin, but to deliver me from the power of sin. To deliver me from that. You see, the repentance here is a big thing. It's like, like yeah, he, he comes to repent I'm so sorry, God. I've, I've done things so wrong. I'm ready to be with you. I, I realize it's not good out here. It's not safe out here. And only with you is it, is it really safe. It's a place of blessing. You see, in reality, the Pharisees and the scribes should have been the ones doing the seeking of the lost. They should have been the ones. Because all heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. This is important, you see, because the religious leaders of that time, they were in essence the under-shepherds of the flock of Israel. They had been given charge over the people of Israel. They were responsible for the care of all the sheep and even the lost ones. They had a responsibility of tending to the needs of the weak and those who were sick and those who were hungry and to rescue those that were in danger. However, just like their forefathers before them, instead of shepherding and tending the flock of God with love and the care of God, they exploited the sheep and they used them to serve themselves and to meet their own own needs. That's the tragedy. And to really understand this, I want you to look with me at Ezekiel 34. Powerful passage. Ezekiel 34, verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel Prophesy and say to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, woe, shepherds of Israel, who've been feeding themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flock? 
You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. And those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The disease you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity, you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over the surface of the earth and there was no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey, My flock has become the food of all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself, look at this, I love this, verse 11, will search for my sheep and seek them out as a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among the scattered sheep. So I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to where they have scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. Moving down to verse 23, we pick up there. He says, and then I will set over them a shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them and he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. And then Jesus shows up. The shepherd of God who loves the flock, goes after the broken, heals the sick, mends those that have broken limbs, and he seeks the lost. Isaiah 53, 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. The more I read about the Pharisees and the scribes, this is what I learned. I don't want to be like them. The more I read about Jesus, the good shepherd who loves his flock, I want to be just like him. I want to love and search because when I was lost, he searched for me and he found me and he rescued me. And now I find something rather odd in my life. I'm drawn to sinners. I'm drawn to sinners, not to sin with them, 
not to join in with them. But I'm drawn to sinners because I know there's someone who loves them and someone who wants to rescue them from where they are. I know that there's a hope. I know that there's a salvation from a loving God who saves sinners. Aren't you glad? See, he came to seek that which is lost. And God is right there today to rescue every lost sheep that would simply call out, Lord, here I am. Take me. Throw me over your shoulders. Bring me back where I belong. Bring me home. See, if you're a lost sheep and you're in danger, and maybe there's some of you watching with us today, and that's you. Maybe some of you are here. You're the one who's been wandering and straying. And life hasn't been going your way. It hasn't been good. And the Lord's here to bring you home where you can be fed and loved and cared for and healed. That's the love of God for his sheep. You say, I mean, we talk about the cost of discipleship. Oh, man, sounds like such a drudgery. Wow. I think, for what? To have a shepherd who loves me? Who cares for me? Who nurtures me and feeds me? Oh, I'll take that any day of the week. The exchange hardly seems fair. Lord, you take me in my broken condition, and I take you for your beauty and your holiness and your mind. You see, he pursues the lost. I wonder, would we? Would we? I don't know how much time God's given us. I don't know. Looks to me like time's running out. Right? You guys sense that? At the very least, some of us, our time's running out pretty soon anyway. <laughs> and by the way, that is such a joyful thought to me, personally. I don't have a death wish, but I know this, that when I pass and I pass into his glory, I'm going to be with him. And that to me says, you know what? I'm glad I'm older. At the very least, I'm going to see him soon. But if you don't know Jesus and you're one of those people who's lost, man, you've been doing things your way, he's there for you. He's there for you today. You have one who loves you, who watches over you, who holds you close. Would you love him in return? Father, we thank you today. We thank you, Lord, just for the wonderful truth, Father, that we see here, the joy of heaven over one sinner who repents. Lord, I don't know all who are here today. I don't know everyone's story, but maybe today, Lord, someone hasn't been so convinced that you really do love them. And I pray, Father, today, God, that you would open their hearts and their mind 
And that God, that they would just receive you. And Lord, that we as a group of people, Lord, would just rejoice. And let me just say here, every eye, every person here, listen, if you're one of those sheep and you've been out there wandering and you've been doing your own thing and today you hear the Lord calling you and he's seeking you out, I want to ask you just to raise your hand wherever you are. If you're here today and you've been wandering, man, you've been doing your own thing, and you've wandered away from the safety and blessing of just being in the flock. As we close here this morning, there's people up here to pray with you. Maybe this morning, it's, it's not that you're lost, it's that you just... You just need to be with Jesus and you need refreshment. And maybe this morning you just need to be reminded that you are his treasure and that he cares for you. Peter says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And today, allow the Lord to minister that. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world. It doesn't matter all the craziness. What matters is where you are with the Lord. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would just minister, Lord, to each one this morning. We pray for healing, for those who need healing, for restoration, for those who need restoration for reconciliation, for those who need reconciliation. Lord, we lift this to you today, Jesus. We are so grateful to call you our shepherd. We thank you, God, for being here this morning.